Hi, Rabbi Schaefer here, and I'm very excited to tell you that the new book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make, is going to be available this Hanukkah. It's been very, very widely received. We sent out about a thousand pre-publication copies to marriage therapists, people who work with young couples, and the response has been really, truly amazing. Please look for it at the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, or your local Jewish bookstore. Okay, let's begin. <clears throat> this week's parsha begins a very long and detailed account of what happens to Yaakov, then Yosef, <clears throat> finally Yosef being sold in Mitzrayim, then Yosef <clears throat> becoming the viceroy, the brothers coming down, and we begin the entire parsha that leads us up to the Bnei Yisrael Shibur Mitzrayim, and eventually Yitzias Mitzrayim. And Rashi, on the first Pesach, comments, now the Torah is coming back to tell us about Yaakov. Explains Rashi, at the end of last week's parsha, there was a short sort of story about Esav, his children, his generations that he gave birth to, but that was very abbreviated. Now the Torah is going in length because this is Yaakov. And this, he explains, is the derech of the Torah. What's important to Torah is marachin, length says at length, that which is not important to the Torah abbreviates. So Esav is not important. So we hear just a few psukim about who he gave birth, his ch- grandchildren, etc. Then we have a very elongated story about Yaakov, because Yaakov is important and Esav isn't. And then Rashi doesn't stop. Rashi goes on, you'll see this pattern many times. <clears throat> there were ten generations from Adam until Noah. Very quickly, the Torah just goes through them name after name. Then <clears throat> we get to Noah, there's an the Torah spends a lot of time telling us about his life. Then the ten generations between Noah and Avram. Also, very quickly, the Torah delineates very quickly generations. When we get to Avram, again, the Torah is lengthy. Again, explains Rashi, that which the Torah wants to emphasize, the Torah spends a lot of time on. That which the Torah does not consider important, the Torah abbreviates. Now, I would think at this point that I understand exactly what Rashi is saying. But Rashi is saying, let me give you a mushal. I want to give you a mushal to explain to you what I mean. Imagine someone lost a precious stone in the sand, and he brings a sieve. He takes the sand in the sieve, and he <coughs> shakes out everything, all the sand, so he'll just have <coughs> what's left. He sees some rocks. The rocks he throw out, because they're not important. And then when he gets to the diamond, oh, the diamond he keeps. <coughs> That's exactly what the Torah is saying, that Esav <coughs> is not important. He's like a rock to throw him out. Diamond, Yaakov is a diamond. That's important that we stop on that, we explain at length. And that's how Rashi explains this Pasuk. Now, I believe that this Rashi is quite, quite troubling, because it's a simple point. Yaakov is important, Esav isn't. The ten generations were not important, Noah was, Avram was. I get it, it's very simple. What do you need a mushal for? A mushal is something that Rashi will use to explain something that you didn't understand. Let me give you a mushal. A mushal means there's something that you're lacking, something you're not getting. Let, let me give you a parable. For instance, if you try to explain color to a blind person, he doesn't have the frame of reference. So you're going to use a mushal. Let me give you a mushal. Imagine that <clears throat> an instrument, right? Imagine that the, the flute is kind of yellow and the oboe is kind of brown. So the saxophone, the saxophone's purple. Now, <clears throat> the blind man doesn't recognize color, but he has a frame of reference via which now to relate to color, even though he can't see. You use a frame of reference when you're explaining something esoteric, something distant, something not clear. What's difficult to understand? It's very obvious. Esav is not important. Yaakov is. The ten generations were not important. Noach was. Avram was. 
Why does Rashi need the Moshal <coughs> to explain this to us? It seems that the Moshal is not needed at all. And I believe if we stop on understanding what Rashi really is teaching us, we'll find a very deep and fundamental concept. And to understand this, Rashi, let me ask you a question. What is the value of a human life? What is human life worth? Now, depending on who you ask, you're going to get different answers to that question. In the U.S. judicial system, there is actually a value given to a life. Um, the value really is you can't buy a life, you can't, there's no no slavery, you can't purchase. But in terms of many laws, there are actual values that are placed on life. For instance, the Department of Transportation puts the value of human life at $9.2 million. Let me explain to you where that comes in and how it's relevant. Let's assume that there are certain measures that can save lives. For instance, seat belts have been proven to save lives. As a matter of fact, typically it'll lessen the death rate by half. So that means that people will wear seatbelts, they're twice as likely, if they're in a serious car crash, to survive than if they're not wearing seatbelts. Okay, very good. Now, a little while back, Congress wanted to pass a law, because you have to wear a seatbelt in the front seat, and there are sensors that will go off and make a beep, beep, beep if you don't put your seatbelt on. So people riding in the front seat will, in fact, put on the seatbelt, and it saves light, lives. But here's the problem. In the back seat, there are no sensors. Now, Congress realized that if they pass a law, they could obligate the car manufacturers to put sensors in the back seat so you'd have the same noise in the back seat as you do in the front. But here's the problem. It would cost car manufacturers $425 million a year. The question is, the amount of money that would need to be spent doesn't warrant the amount of lives that would be saved. So here's the calculation. If they put rear sensors, the estimates are it would save about 44 lives a year, and that comes out to approximately $9.6 million. It's over the threshold, and Congress could not pass a law, and because that's above the value of a human life, 9.2 is appropriate, 9.2 is too, 6 is too high. So that's an interesting way of valuing a human life, $9.6 million. Now, if you're familiar with Medicare and many uh, insurance companies, you know they don't have such a high threshold. Uh, For instance, a new drug comes to the market, and this drug can save lives, but it's expensive. How does Medicare determine whether they will, in fact, authorize this medicine or this procedure or not? So again, a very simple cost calculation goes into how much will it cost to save how many people, and therefore, what is the cost per person per year of life to give them quality of life. And interestingly enough, Medicare has a number called $50,000. That means if it costs more than $50,000 to administer a medication or a procedure to a group of people, and it would end up saving half of those people, but it would end up costing $55,000 per person, it's not done. So for instance... Imagine that you had a cost, you had a thousand people had a particular illness, and there was a medication that was effective saving half of those people. But it ended up costing $37 million. Here's the problem. 500 is the net saving. You'd only save 500 people. And $37 million divided by that 500 is way, way, way above the threshold of $50,000 per person. Therefore, it's not done. The medication is not approved. The procedure is not accepted. Sorry, find some other solution. Okay, so we have some values. We have 
two million, fifty million. Interestingly enough, if you'd ask the Torah, there's also a value. The Torah has a value that they give to human life. It's called priceless. There is no number. When Chazal say, Hashem says, I would have created the entire cosmos, the entire earth, for one human being. That means Hashem created Adam alone, and Hashem created an entire world, a hundred billion galaxies, each containing a hundred billion stars, for one man to teach us all a lesson, that that is the value of human life. But here's the point. Whether life is worth 9.6 million, 50,000, or if you'd ask a chemist, maybe the value of human life would be just uh, some carbon, some calcium, about $920. The values of life are going to be very, very different based on who's asking the question and based on what scale of measure you're using. But really, here's the point. The real determinant of the value of life is what you do with your life. And if, in fact, you are a behemoth, let's say a person lives a life which is basically meaningless, empty, and vacuous, and then a chemist might be right, look at the sum total of his little bit of oxygen, some salt, some water, add up all the chemicals, and you have about $920 worth of value. Now let me explain to you why this is very relevant to us. Let's imagine you have Joe, the UPS driver. Now, Joe, the UPS driver, comes home every night after work, and he drinks his six-pack, he curses not too much, and not too nasty to his wife. He just, you know, he's basically just whatever. He goes through his life day after day, <clears throat> puts on the brown socks, puts on the brown pants, drives a truck, and doesn't do much other than come home, drink his six-pack, go to sleep day after day after day. Now, we don't know who he is, and we don't have a clue to what he's accomplishing, and we don't have a clue to what he does. But let's assume we pegged him right. <clears throat> let's assume we pegged Joe as being just a flatlining, just going through the motions, doing very little at all. And in fact, Joe leaves this earth. And we would get to look back at his life from the world to come. We would see he lived like basically a rock. He was basically like a behemoth. He made some money, spent the money, made the money, spent the money. But if there really is nothing that he accomplished... And nothing that he did vis-a-vis other people, nothing that he did to change the people he lives amongst, change himself, then in fact his value probably would be the equivalent to what the chemist would give to the human being, $920 and not much more. Because if he's living his life that way, that's who he is. Now you and I never know. If we see Joe, we have to remember he's created in the image of Hashem. And we don't have a clue to what he actually does. And we don't have a clue to the chesed he might do, we don't have a clue to the kindness and the various things he might be doing, and therefore we're obligated to treat him with all the due respect of a human being created in the image of God. But again, if we got it right, then Joe was basically an animal walking on two legs, not much different, going through the motion and accomplishing nothing at all. But I'd like to you know, understand something. You don't hate a rock. You're not angry at a rock. You're not angry, you're not a rock is just a rock. It's just valueless. It's just chemicals. It's just minerals. It's just not very important at all. And I'd like to share with you why this is relevant. I had a friend of mine who I went to school with who became a lawyer and became a very successful lawyer. But naturally, to become a very successful lawyer, you had to put in many, many hours, as in 80 hours a week, week after week after week after week. And I remember once speaking to him, and he described his days. 
Besides the 80 hours a week that he works, he also had to commute over an hour each way. And we're talking about spending almost his entire life between commuting and working. That was basically his life. And when I speak to him about davening, who could daven a minion? And learning, who could learn? And Shabbos, to be honest with you, I come home, I'm, I'm so zonked, I just, I fall asleep on the table. Again, we don't know, and it's not our place to judge, but if prima facie, if what I saw was an apt description of his life, then he's living like a rock. Now, don't get me wrong, any Jew who keeps Shabbos, who keeps kosher, Taras Mishpacha, has a place in the world to come. But if you understand the potential of a human, and you understand what he's doing is, he's living like just a person who has no purpose in existence. And if you'd like to understand where this really comes to show, if you go to a Beis and you see a tombstone, and on the words are, there lies Sam. Sam was a good provider. And I believe that those are the most damning words that could ever be expressed about a human being. Sam was a good provider means Hashem created beasts of burden. There's a cow that pulls the plow. There's a chamor, there's a donkey that pulls the load. There's a horse that you ride on. And when man becomes a beast of burden, when he exists to work, when that's his essence, and when on the epithet, when his final words you put on his tombstone, Sam was a good provider, you're defining the human in the most base terms, and the most animalistic terms, and you're taking a human being and you're explaining that he's basically worthless, he's basically worth $920, and I believe that's exactly what Rashi's saying. If the Torah told us that Yaakov was important and Esau wasn't, you wouldn't understand the point. Let me give you a mushal. Imagine you have a sieve. You drop a diamond in the sand. You take this sieve and you shake out the sand and some rocks, and you throw the rocks out, they're valueless. You find the diamond, oh, the diamond I want. You see, what that mushal tells us is, quite how valueless Esav was. It wasn't that he was you know, pretty valuable. It wasn't that he was a tenth of Yaakov Avinu. He was like a rock, worthless, meaningless. He lived his life empty, vacuous, and at the end of his days, he was basically that. $920, the chemist who got it right, that's what he became. And many, many people that you meet in life live their lives pretty close to that. And it's rather sad. Because if Hashem says, I would have created an entire cosmos for you alone, the first question you have to ask yourself is, well, what is expected of me? If Hashem would have created a whole world for me, what is it that I can accomplish? And what is it that I'm supposed to do? And I sure don't believe it's to make money, to spend that money, to make some more money, to spend that money, make some more money, then we die. Because that's a beast of burden, and that's a rock, and that's what Esav was. And what Rashi's teaching us is a fundamental yesod, you're not going to understand the vast difference between Yaakov and Esav if Hashem just says, Yaakov was important and Esav isn't. Let me give you a mushal. Would you like to know the distinction? It's like you're in the sand and you find a rock. A rock you throw out is nothing to you. You want the diamond? Ah, oh, the diamond, that's wow. But the rock is valueless. That is a human being who lives his life just whatever, going through emotions, earning a living, getting married, have a couple of kids, and whatever. You're living the life of a rock. And I'd like to share with you, there is a flip side to this. The corollary is what a human being actually could accomplish. And to understand what a human being can accomplish, let's listen to the Mishnah. The Mishnah says, 
ten generations from Adam to Noah to teach you how much patience Hashem has. Very nice. Then the Mishra says, Asar Doros Mi Noach Van Avram, ten generations from Noach to Avram, to show you how much Erech Apayim, how much patience Hashem has, because explains the Mishnah, Shakola Doros Ayimachasinu Boyin, each of the generations made Hashem angry, Achebo Avram, until Avram came, Vikibel Schar Kulam, and Avram received the reward for all of those generations. Ten generations from Noach to Avram, <coughs> Avram came along, and it received the reward for all ten generations. But listen to how Rabbeinu Yonah learns that. He says, make no mistake. What do you mean Avram received the reward for all ten generations? Male kolachasronus. All of the lack, all of the sins that they did, he filled it in. Vasatovus And any evil that they did, he did good opposite that. Whatever they didn't accomplish, he did accomplish and whatever evil they perpetrated, he did good opposite it. He weighed out against ten generations of people, therefore he received the reward of all ten generations. Now, that Rabbeinu Yonah is rather, rather difficult to understand. Meaning, let's assume I find you a man who's very efficient, very, very good at time management. So the average man earns $50,000 a year, and this man is so efficient... He's effective as 10 men. He earns $500,000 a year. Okay, that's very impressive. Let's say I found a man who's so incredibly efficient in his time that he could do the work, the equivalent of 100 men. You'd be astounded. That's not what Rabbeinu Yonah is saying. Rabbeinu Yonah is saying whatever they didn't do, Avram did. Whatever evil they perpetrated, he did good deeds opposite it. He's not saying that Avram harnessed some extra force. Whatever they didn't do, he did. He accomplished the work of ten generations of men. I don't care how efficient you are, I don't care how fast you are, you cannot accomplish an entire city's worth of work, an entire country's worth of work, ten generations of people's worth of work. There's no explanation, there's no system that we could understand that via. And the question is, what does this mean? And to understand this, Rabbi Yonah, let me share with you an interesting muscle. A number of years ago, I had trouble with my back, and I was living in Rochester. I had a friend there, Doc Roskin, and Doc Roskin took me down to the gym. Okay, this is a powerlifting gym, and Doc uh, was showing me how he works out. So Doc was doing squats. Squats, you put weight on the bar, and you squat down, and you go up. You go down, you go up. Okay, and so Doc picked a six-foot-long Olympic bar, and he puts 45-pound plates on both sides. And he's got 144 pounds on the bar, gets under the bar, Doc goes down, Doc goes up, Doc goes down, Doc goes up, very nice, puts the bar down. Okay. And next set, he adds another set of plates. He's now up to 234 pounds. He goes under the bar, and Doc goes down, Doc goes up, Doc goes down, Doc goes up. That's pretty impressive. Then he puts on another set of plates. He's up to 324 pounds on the bar. He gets under the bar, and I'm waiting to see where this goes. He gets under the bar, Doc goes down, Doc goes up, Doc goes down, Doc goes up. He does six reps, puts it down, and he, then he puts on a fourth plate. There are now 424 pounds on the bar. Now, I want you to understand what this means. When you have a six-foot-long Olympic bar with 424 pounds on it, the bar bends in the center. But he's in the center under the bar. He gets under the bar, and Doc goes down, Doc goes up, Doc goes down, Doc goes up. I say, that is mighty impressive. He puts the weight down. 
And I said, that is astonishing. 424 pounds, and he's doing squats almost to the floor, up and down. That's, that's amazing. And then he said these words, now it's time to get to work. And I said, what? And he proceeded to put over 600 pounds on the bar. Doc got under that bar. Doc went down. Doc got up. Doc went down. Doc got up. Up and down. Up and down. Six reps. He put the bar down. And I said to myself, that's astonishing. 600 pounds on his back. And he goes up and down, up and down doing reps. That's astonishing. But here was the interesting part. Doc wasn't like this huge muscular guy. He was rather slim. He made maybe... 165 pounds. And I remember him before he started lifting, he was a real thin guy. But a very interesting thing happens when you go through progressive weight training in a proper way. You push the body to exceed the load, you add a little bit more, a little bit more, you eat right, you exercise properly, and you get stronger and stronger and stronger until a fellow who doesn't weigh that much, who's not some huge muscle man, can lift easily 600 pounds and do reps with it, And I said, that's mighty impressive. But here's the point. If you ask Doc to bench press a freight train, well, let's say you wanted to put a Mack truck on his back and say, come on, do a couple of reps. Uh Uh-uh, it wouldn't happen. Because you can grow. You become stronger. You can lift 600 pounds, but there are limits to the human body. And those limits are very defined and very real. But I'd like to share with you, when it comes to Ruchnius, the growth is very different. Every time you exercise in ruchnius, in spiritual manners, you become larger and larger, but the growth is unbridled. Your body is limited. You're only going to lift so much. Your bones can only carry so much. Your muscles and ligaments can only carry so much load. But when you're growing in ruchnius, the growth is exponential and you continually grow. But I want to explain to you something that's very, very profound. When you grow and you grow, you get larger and larger and larger. And here's one of the great chedushim of weight training. If you lift 600 pounds, you're going to get a workout. If I go to the gym and lift 100 pounds, I'm not going to get anywhere near the type of workout that a fellow who's lifting 600 pounds lifts. Why? Because when you lift 100 pounds, yes, it's my maximum, but there's only so much strain put on the muscles, only so much strain put on the bones, and your body responds to the load. The more load that you put on, the more the body is forced to respond. So when you work out with 200 pounds, your body is now given a much greater load. It's forced to respond even more. 300 pounds, it's forced to respond even more. When you're lifting 600 pounds, the body is pushed to its limit, and it expands and grows, and everything, all the systems are pushed to the ultimate, and your workout is much more potent. You become much stronger, and the load that you're able to lift afterwards is much greater. But again, there's a limit. When it comes to ruchnius, there's almost no limit. So if you'd imagine Avram Avinu started at lifting 100 pounds, and then 200 pounds, and 400 pounds, and 800 pounds, and when he got to 1,600 pounds, and 3,200 pounds, because physicality is limited, but spiritual dimensions aren't. And once he was lifting 3,200 pounds, the exercise was so powerful and it created such a change in him that he got to 64,000 pounds, 125,000. He got to the point where what he did, he accomplished what 10 generations of men couldn't accomplish, and all of their bad, he did good to connect it. Why? Because he was gargantuan. He was a giant, a powerful man, walking the same earth as you and I, 
but living in a totally different world. And he was literally a spiritual giant who was able to accomplish 10 generations worth of work. Now, that is very, very eye-opening, very inspiring, but you may say, what does it got to do with me? And you'll have a very good question to ask, because the truth is most of us have been learning and davening and doing mitzvahs for many, many years, and I sure don't feel big, I don't feel huge, and let me be very blunt over here, this is not said out of humility, this is not said out of some misunderstanding of self or sense, I've been at this game for over 40 years. I started learning Musa at 19 years of age in yeshiva, and I worked and I worked and I worked and I worked, and I have not been lazy. And I spend a half hour a day to an hour a day every day, with a short exception of a few months when I was a Rebbe in Rochester. For Other than that, I've been learning every day of my life a half hour to an hour of Musa. And I work on dominating, and I work on my midos, and I can honestly say, I don't know, am I that much bigger? Am I that much greater? And I mentioned this last night in the Derech Hashem Shir, and I'm going to do something I don't do, but it's worth repeating. If you listen to that Shir, I'm going to say the same thing I'm to, I said last night. I reached a certain point, it was maybe five years ago, where I had almost Chalisha Sadat. You see, when you start out, you're young, and, and you have dreams and aspirations. And I remember very clearly, when I started out in Yeshiva, I had real dreams. Uh, my dominance is going to be incredible, and my learning is going to be amazing. I'm going to work on this media and that media. And I had very clear goals as to where I was going to be. But a funny thing happened. You hit 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, and I was not lazy. And I was working and working, and you hit a certain point where you realize, uh-oh, I'm not getting there. Am I that much different? Yes, I changed. Yes, I grew. But am I anywhere near what I thought I should be? And the answer is no. And again, I had personally a chalisha zadat about five years ago. I reached a point where I said, "This is what does this mean? Does this mean forever I'm stuck here? This is who I am? And then I learned something in Derech Hashem that was so eye-opening that it was literally, didn't save me from jumping off the Brooklyn Bridge, but almost. Explain to Derech Hashem as follows. <clears throat> the neshama has a koach, has a power to change the body. As a matter of fact, when Adam Arishan was born, when he was first created, his neshama was so pure, so powerful, that he could literally change the essence of him at will. The muscle I use is dieting. Let's say I decide I want to lose weight. I make up, I'm not eating chocolate cake for the next two months. That's a fine decision. But every time I see chocolate cake, there's going to be a battle. I want, I don't want, I do, I don't, I don't, I do. Now let's even say I win the battle, and for two months I don't touch chocolate cake. I still desired it, I still wanted it. That wasn't Adam Rishon. If Adam Rishon decided that he no longer wants to eat chocolate cake, he changed his nefesh Bahami. His animal soul was malleable, was plastic, he could change it. He could make it as such that he no longer desired chocolate cake. He no longer desired more than 2,500 calories a day. Now, that's a muscle. In real terms, what it means is, if Adam Marishan decided he was a tad too arrogant, he would change the essence of him. A tad too much anger, change. His neshama was so powerful, so potent, and that at will it could change the nefesh of Mahami, change the animal soul, and he could make himself into what he would be for eternity. When Adam sinned, he changed the entire world. 
And this element of the neshama changing the guf stopped. And the neshama can't change the guf. And let's go back to our mushal. If I decide that chocolate cake is the worst thing in the world, I still desire it. And if I decide anger is the worst thing in the world, I'll still get angry. Now I could work on it slowly, slowly, after many years, many years, 20 years, 30, I could make minor, small changes, but the neshama doesn't have the power to do the changes that it really was created originally to do, and it's a long, long, slow, bitter, bitter process. But watch what happens. Explain to Derech Hashem, every time I exercise my neshama, let's assume I attempt to work on anger, I learn musr, or I actually close my mouth, my body prevents my neshama from changing it. The body blocks it, but the neshama grows. And as long as the neshama is housed in its body, it can't actualize its potential, it can't change the body. It grows, but it can't change the neshama. So the I, the guf, I'm sorry, so the I whom I'm speaking to remain where I am. But each time I exercise my neshama, it becomes greater, it becomes bigger. So a person can work on anger day after day, day after day. He creates this shadow man, this shadow of a person with a much greater, much less temper, and much more holy. And you create this shadow man because the neshama is growing and growing and growing. The I who I'm speaking to may not change because the body blocks it. But it's only because the body blocks it, but the neshama grows and grows and it might be an anger it might be on humility, it might be near Shemayim, it might be in davening, but every area that you work on, the neshama grows. Again, in my cognitive state right now, you won't see the change, because my body blocks it, but the neshama is much greater. But watch what happens. When I'm done my job on this earth, my body's put in the ground, and I separate. I go to the Olam Neshamas, and explain to Derech Hashem, whoosh! And my neshama is suddenly allowed full full size and fills in that shadow man whatever work that I did during my lifetime here that couldn't be actualized and because the body blocked it but it was in the potential and since it was in the potential and when I my body's put in the ground and I separate I'm in Oloman Shamas and I fill in the full size of who I was and if you'd like to know why you could work for years and years and not see much difference You'll see minor differences, you'll see incremental differences, and the major differences you don't see, it's because the body blocks it. But once the body's put in the ground, <clears throat> the neshama gets to fill out its full size. And what that means in plain, simple language is, you and I might see a person walking down the street, he might look like us. He might just look just like you. He might be a giant. He could be a giant the size of Avram Avinu. We won't see it. In his operating mode, because his body's blocking him, he looks like you and me. But he worked and he worked and he worked and he worked. He worked on his anger, worked on his humility, worked on dominating, worked on Yerushalayim, and he's a giant. His neshama is huge, exponentially huge. In his operating mode right now, he speaks like you and I, feels like you and I, but when his body's put in the ground, whoosh, he fills in that full size. Avram Avinu is an interesting illustration, and because he changed. He was so great that he was able to change his body, but nevertheless, he wasn't his full size. Even in his existence here, he was not his full size. When Rabbeinu Yonah says he did the equivalent of ten generations of work, and what that means is his body still blocked him. But when his body was put in the ground, and he went to Olam Neshamas, whoosh, he gained the reward of ten generations of people. Why? Because that was his accomplishments. What he did... And because when you get under that bar in spiritual growth, 
It's not just lifting 100 pounds or 200 pounds. It's thousands and thousands of pounds, and you grow and you grow and you grow. You may not be aware of it, but that's who you are for eternity. I think this Rashi is fundamental and eye-opening. <clears throat> what Rashi is saying is, the reason why the Torah said, spent a lot of time on Yaakov is because Yaakov is important and Esav isn't. But don't make a mistake. <clears throat> don't think that like Yaakov is a lot more important. Esav is important, but you know, <clears throat> Yaakov is a lot... Uh-uh. Let me give you a mushal. Imagine a man who lost a diamond and he has a sieve and he picks up some stuff, the sand falls out, and he's got some rocks, throw the rocks out, the, oh, the diamond, the diamond I want. Asif was a rock. He lived his life valueless, meaningless, purposeless. When you see Bob, the UPS driver, again, I don't know, you don't know, we have to treat him with all due respect of a Tzal Mokim, person creating an image of Hashem, because who knows what he does. But let's assume we got it right. And let's assume that all he did was make some money, spend that money, make that money, spend that money, and he dies then his value was, during his lifetime, about 920 bucks. He was the same as a Hamar, as a Shor, as a Gamal, and the chemist got it right. And even if a person grows and accomplishes, he might be worth 9.6 million, he might be worth 10 million, but that's not the value of a human being. When you understand your value, when you understand priceless is not even a word that can be applied to a human being, you understand Hashem put us here for much greater purposes. And that greater purpose is to grow, to accomplish, to change the essence of me. When you hear about a tzaddik like Avram Avinu, who could do the equivalent work of ten generations, it's because in the world of spirituality, there are limitless growth. You grow and you grow, you become larger and larger, and there are no limits, there are no absolute ceilings. And when you hear about a man who accomplishes ten generations worth of work, you're looking at a man who's a giant. Why don't I feel it? If I'm working so hard, if I'm working my dominating and learning it, why don't I feel it? The answer is you're not going to feel it here. Because when Adam sinned, the body now blocks. When the body blocks, what happens is I can't change. Yes, I can change in very small incremental fashion, very, very small, but the real, real change happens when the Shama grows bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It won't be allowed to change the body. And in my current state, I am where I am. But every day, I become larger and larger. When my body's put in the ground, the body remains there, my neshama, whoosh, fills in the strength, and you become huge. And I think this is a tremendous answer and a tremendous understanding, because it allows us to understand the capacity of a human, allows us to understand what a human being could be, and allows us to understand what we're supposed to accomplish in this world. And now I'd like to open the floor to questions, thoughts, observations. It can be on this subject or any other subject. Please feel free to raise your hand if you're so inclined. Or if you like, you could type the questions in. I also just want to mention again before I forget, very important, the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make is in the stores. You go to your local storm store or you can go to the schmooze.com and you click on the banner, you could order it. Um, the advantage of going to schmooze.com, by the way, is that there are a number of extra features that you get. Number one is the audio book. I don't know if you could see this here, but this is my uh, very fancy uh, stage mic. I got a whole setup uh, with a with a whole a whole stage mic, a whole mic, and a and a sound system. Anyway, bottom line is I narrated the book. I <coughs> read the book, you know, but professionally narrated. I had a sound engineer, and I learned to use the equipment properly, and I narrated the book. And if you buy it online, not only do you get the book, but you get the uh, you get the the audio book. You also get the ebook, and there's also 
you get access to the Marriage Transformation Bootcamp. So the book is available in the stores. If you'd like to pick it up, the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, it's available in the farm store. But if you get it online, if you go to shrooms.com, you get the extra bonuses, you'll get the audio book, the ebook, as well as access to the uh, the Marriage Transformation Bootcamp. So I, I hope you'll avail yourself of it. I've received rave reviews. Hashem. You know, I mentioned this earlier, we sent out about a thousand pre-publication copies uh, to chosen teachers, college teachers, marriage therapists. Today I was at the Aguda Convention, and I'll be honest with you, I was a little bit um, overwhelmed. I was there because there was a Kala teachers, uh, they had a special convention for Kala teachers, and about 100, 100, 150 Kala teachers were there, and I spoke to them ahead of time, and I wanted to give out my book. I wanted people to be able to access the book. When I got there, I would have thought, I don't know, Michael Jackson or some celebrity. Oh, Rabbi Schaefer, I read the book. It's great. My friend told me about it. It's, it's amazing. I've been trying to give my colleagues the book. It's great. It's the best marriage book ever. I was like, wow, I'm, wow, I'm very complimented. I, I didn't know what to say. The reason I'm saying that is because Baruch Hashem, it's been very, very well received by professionals, by people who do this for a living, who teach chassanim, teach colleagues, and marriage therapists. It's been very, very, very well received. I highly recommend if you go to the shmuz.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, you can get your copy. Um, and again, I highly recommend it. Um, please, please avail yourself of it. Okay, and now we'll take questions. If you want, you could type the questions in. Um, okay, I bought the new book on the Schmooze website. I'm looking forward to good. Was the offer up with the audio book? Um, if you didn't get the audio, because we just put that, that audio book up now. Um, if you didn't get the audio book, send me an email. I'll gladly send you that. Um, <clears throat> okay. Um, here's an interesting question. What are ways to increase my ruchnius in such a superficial world? So, you know, you have to understand, that's what all the mitzvahs do. All the mitzvahs, you know, we just go through motions, unfortunately, and we don't realize the impact, the power. When I put on tefillin, when I pick up a lul of an esrog, when I do chesed, when I make a bracha, a hundred times a day, we, we're supposed to stop, cut through the static, acknowledge Hashem's presence, elokeinu, agad, melech olam if we'd use what we're given, these tools, properly, the spiritual growth would be incredible. You're right, it's a very superficial world. <clears throat> but you have to take the time to actually stop and work on things, and you have to work on things at a different pace. You have to work on, some time you're going to work on davening, another time you're going to work on amun and bitachan, another time you're going to work on your, your midos. Um, I highly recommend, there are many series on the Shmuz site, and you want to work on any area. We have two series on davening. We have a series on a moon in the workplace. There's a series be talking workshop. And you have to pick an area, you work on it, and you work on it for 30 days or whatever it may be until you feel you have a certain grip on it, and then you move on to another area, but you have to be focused. You have to focus on things. If you're going to practice with what I call robotic Judaism, just going through motion, just... You're right. It's a superficial world, and it's and it's going to be difficult to change. But each mitzvah was designed by our Creator to change the essence of me. You see, Hashem knows very well what He's doing, and Hashem created the system for spiritual self-perfection. That's the mitzvah. Those are the, that's the Torah, and that's what Hashem gave us as the system to grow to change the essence of me. Now, obviously, I have to understand the mitzvahs. I have to understand what I'm doing. I have to have intention and recognize the focal point of them. So I have to work on it. But that's exactly what we were given. We are given all the tools to grow, to accomplish, to change. If you use it properly, it accomplishes just exactly that. Okay, let's take a question. Um, Okay, 
I got the pre-publication. Can I get the audiobook? Yes. If you got a pre-publication copy or you got a copy and didn't get the audiobook, send me an email and I'll gladly send you access to the uh, to the audiobook. It's on Amazon Audible. It's on ACAG. It's on all the different places. I'll gladly... So just send me an email to Rebbe, R-E-B-B-E, at theshmooze.com. R-E-B-B-E, at theshmooze.com. And I'll gladly send you a link to the audio. Um, okay, let me just read this question. We're going to take a question... Uh, actually, you know, Avrami Jacob, your hand is up. Avrami, go for it. How are we doing? Good, good. Shalom Aleichem. So shalom. I heard Rebbe speak about the, the Shadow Man, the famous Derek uh, Hashem Shadow Man before. But, uh, oh, you've heard that? Oh, yeah. oh really? Interesting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Well, I want to clarify. Yes. So let's say, let's say on a scale, just... Sir, theoretically, I'm point oh oh one percent perfect in my probably a lot more zeros than that, hundreds of zeros. I doubt. I doubt. Let me stop. For me, I got to stop you. I I doubt it. You're way miles and miles off. And what you're referring to is you right now. It is me right now. You're right. I'm mostly goof, mostly the animal, and my ruchnius is very weak. That doesn't mean you, you have a clue to where your neshama is at. If you learn, if you dominate, a guy who's in yeshiva and spends hours and hours learning, you're changing your neshama. You're, you're lighting up your neshama. And your neshama is glowing. Now, I don't recognize it. I still dominate the same way, and I still space out, and I still... Uh, why, don't, why don't I change? You can't change. Once Adam sinned, he wrecked my sobracious. The human being can no longer change as he was designed to change. The neshama can't do its main job, which is to change the essence of me, to change the body. So therefore, what you're referring to is the I who'm speaking to you in the current state. You might be, I don't know where you're at, you know, but that doesn't refer to where your neshama is at. Your neshama might be huge and powerful. And again, if you're spending years and years in yeshiva learning and growing and dominating, I'm sure that it is huge, way, way beyond anything you can recognize. The problem is, I don't feel that. I don't recognize because I'm stuck inside here. But that reality becomes clear once my body's been on the ground, whoosh, I become what I really am. So I'm trying to understand the, the, the relation between where I am and where my shadow man is. So, so let's, say, let's just say theoretically, like I was 1% perfect and, and just go you know, outside, external, from just seeing how I am right now. Mm-hmm. And then in my shadow man, this is a, how I'm understanding it, that the work that I'm doing, what goes into him, I might go from 1% to 1.01%, but in my shadow man, it's much more. It, it might be 30%, and now right. it's 35%. And it might be huge. He might be a huge, huge, gargantuan entity that you won't recognize until your body stops blocking you which is only when the body's put in the ground. So, so that that higher percentage, as soon as you take away the goof, that higher that expanded ruchnius is going to be visible. Exactly, you'll be it. You, that is you. It will be you now if it weren't for the fact that you're mixed into this nefesh bahami, animal soul that can't change. So it is you, except right now you're blocked. You, you're occluded. You can't. You know, Shema can't do the job of changing. So you're stuck. But once your body's put in the ground, whoosh, you become that full size. Mighty cool, no? Really, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty cool. Pretty cool. <laughs> it almost sounds like what Chazal say about every word of Torah changes you and every mitzvah changes you, and it almost sounds like that's what they're 
what they're talking about. And you wonder, but I'm still the same guy. You're right. I'm still the same guy because I'm right now blocked by the body. But every word that Chazal say, that every word of Torah is more precious than pearls and, and gold, and, and the change is dramatic and, and incredible. All of that is true. I don't recognize it now, because again, I'm blocked by the body, but that reality will become clear to me when my body's put on the ground, whoosh, I become that full size. Right, so, so here's the, the follow-up. Follow-up question. How does that... <laughs> part two, yeah. Part two. How does that relate to, to our avos? So uh, the way I always understood it is, if we talk in percentages again, is that when I'm born, I don't have the capacity to become Moshe Rabbeinu, right. but Lafi, my scale, whatever Hashem, meaning I'm here to become the best possible me I could become. <clears throat> and what the best possible me I could become is, let's say, 67% perfect. Okay. And the best possible Moshe Rabbeinu could have become was like 99.9%. So my understanding is if I became my 67% or whatever it was, then I would be right up there with Moshe Rabbeinu at his 99%. Okay, is that, is that, that that, that's one way of, um, of framing it. Let's, let's assume that we frame it that way, which, again, is one way of framing it, but fine. <clears throat> that is correct. Now, the question is, what, what are you now as we speak here? So <clears throat> as we speak you may be almost not even recognizing any growth, any changes. And by the way, even though Moshe Rabbeinu was far greater and his neshama was able to make significant changes in his guf, and as a result he really reached great levels in this world, even he was still blocked by his body. Even Moshe Rabbeinu, who was the greatest human being who ever lived, still could not access Hashem to the same way when he was in his body. And even though he was at the point whereas Neshama really did change his body. But nevertheless, it was still occluded, still blocked, and still couldn't really access it fully. So it's not really what, what you see is what you get. It's what work you do is Correct, what you correct. What you see is what you get. It is, it's an important muscle because it allows you to know that if you, if you don't do the work, you're going to be slumming it. But even if you're doing the work and you're really at it, it doesn't mean if I... I'll give you a good example. This is really where it surfaces. <clears throat> Let's assume a guy is born with an 85 in anger. Let's assume anger begins with zero, means no anger whatsoever. 100 is like a total kaisen beyond belief. A guy is born with 85. And he worked, and he worked, and he really, really... And he got himself down to a 50. Now, 50 means he still has a pretty fierce temper. And he still loses it pretty often. Right? So does that mean for eternity he's stuck? He's stuck. He's got a cost. He's got. A t- t- he's imperfect. <clears throat> so the answer is no, because he worked anywhere. He did enough work, maybe to get himself to zero. The problem is his body wouldn't let the work work do the wouldn't let his neshama make the changes. But that's only because of the body. And he might have perfected his anger. He might have gotten to zero in terms of cost from the work that his neshama did. Unfortunately, his body blocked him, and he still had episodes of anger and still had things. But that doesn't mean his neshama didn't reach that level. And therefore, when his body's put in the ground, and he whoosh, he fills in that full size, he might be a zero in anger, or might, whatever it may be, because he really did the work that's appropriate to reach that level. Is that confusing enough? I think I, think I understand. It, okay, good. If only, we got, if only we got report cards from Hashem, you know, like every 20 years, progress report. Yeah. Oh, look, the, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, you're right. But you know what the problem would be? There would be no free will. There would be no free will. 
If I realize the value of every mitzvah, every word of Limanat Torah is va- almost valueless, diamonds and pearls, what's Bechira? Where's free will? The reason why there's free will is because I don't see it. It's sluggish and slow, and the growth is so tiny, tiny little steps, and I'm so easy to say, oh, stop the whole thing, it's meaningless. There, that's what creates free will. Nice. Okay, thank you very much. Okay. Uh, so, oh, There's a follow-up on the follow-up. The When's the Minga merchandise coming out? <laughs> When's the which? The... Minga, make your marriage great again. Nope, and MAGA, MAGA. Make a marriage great again. I, I got it, but I can't do it because I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get a lot of trouble from the from the political side. So I can't do it. Make a marriage great again. We're not doing the blacklisted. Yeah, that's right. I'm probably good. Good. Okay. Please feel free. If you have a question, please feel free to raise your hand. Um, let me just put his hand down. On this ill talking. Um, okay. Here's a question over here. When one needs clarity in a situation, and they talk to Hashem, but feel it's not connecting, is it from Shemayim that the situation isn't for me? Let me read that question again so I understand it. When one needs clarity in a situation, and they talk to Hashem, but feel it's not connecting, I guess I'm not connecting, is it from Shemayim that the situation isn't for me? Um, I have to ask you, please clarify the question a little bit more, because um, I'm not getting the question. I have a feeling this has to do with a shidduch, um, but I'm not... I'm not connecting with the question, so please, if you just fill it in a little bit more, I'll try to answer it. Um, okay. Um, okay. Uh, what are ways that a person can find themselves more? What are ways that a person can find themselves more? Again, it's Torah and mitzvahs. That's, that's, that's what Hashem gave us this package for. And when we daven, when we learn, we keep Shabbos. What, what is Shabbos? Zeich my separations. For me to get it. That Hashem is a Bore Olam. I'm a creation. Hashem is my creator. <clears throat> 25 hours a week where I stop the busyness. I dedicate myself to knowing that Hashem is my creator. I'm the creation. <clears throat> I learn. I daven. It's a different day. It's a Ruchnia's day. But if you have to use the day properly, if you use Shabbos for what it was intended, <clears throat> it's a powerful Ruchnia's spiritual entity. If you use mitzvahs as they were intended, it changes the essence of me. But you have to use them as they were intended. You have to really you understand what they are and, and accomplish. Um, okay. <clears throat> yes, Shaduchim, not feeling connected to Hashem. So, um, what can I tell you? Uh, you know, it's. Um, I wish I could tell you <clears throat> that Yildamin and Elio and Novi will come out and say, yes, it's the right one. I have a suggestion. <clears throat> Bishol Eitza, ask. You see, Many times there's an in, there's an intuitive sense. Many times people intuitively know that it's the right one or not the right one, and it's the static that we put in our own mind that prevents me from knowing. My Rebbe Rishivas always would say, if you have a moral dilemma, obviously you ask Das Torah, obviously you ask people older and smarter, but if you get to a certain point where you can't ask, or you're not getting answers, what you do is you close your eyes and ask yourself, what do I think is the right thing? But listen to what you have to do. You close your eyes and say, what do I think is the right thing? And listen to that voice inside. <clears throat> You'll know what it is. The problem is, yeah, but, if I do this, and there's this consequence, I don't want this, I don't want that. No, no, no I don't care. Forget the agenda. Forget the consequences. What do I think is the right thing? If you ask yourself that question, what do I think is the right thing? 
and you carefully listen to the answer. Forget the agenda, forget the consequences. But if I do that, then it's going to mean forget that. <clears throat> what do I think is the right thing? Intuitively, you'll know. Especially when it comes to Shaduchim, because keep in mind <clears> that Hashem determines who's the right person for whom. Forty days before a person is put into this world, Hashem says, Bito Shaploni Luploni. <clears throat> and Revolvi says, in the name of the Chazanish, when you have an intuitive sense, when you're going on a date and there's an intuitive sense, it just feels right. Not rockets on the 4th of July, not infatuation, it just feels comfortable. I look forward to the dates, I enjoy the company, and it just seems to be going right. That's the intuitive sense that of knowing that this is the right one. But I'm not madly, passionately in love. And and he's not the kind of person I thought he'd be. I always dreamt, that might be true. You know, what we do is we make our own Mr. Potato Head, you know, the little child's toy, you put it to these lips and these feet. We make our Mr. Potato Head, and then I go into the marketplace to find the one closest to my Mr. Potato Head. But that's not called looking for your Bashar. Looking for your Bashar is knowing that Hashem knows better than I what's my best, I'm going out there to see if this person and I, is there a connection, is there a commonality? Not mad, deep, passionate love, just a sense of I look forward to being with him, I enjoy his company, it just seems to be heading in the right way. You do the paper test, by the way, a quick plug for the Finding and Keeping a Soulmate book. If you haven't read the book, please read the book. Go on Amazon, or go to schmooze.com, Finding and Keeping a Soulmate, <clears throat> there I describe clearly the paper test and the Bashar test. Paper test is, you see, on paper, you guys aligned. That means in big, broad brushstrokes, are you looking for the same things in life? Are you looking to raise f- your family about the same way? Are you looking to the same sort of lifestyle? But again, in broad brushstrokes, not minutia, not details, but <clears throat> are you holding about the same place in life? That's the paper test. Once you t- pass the paper test, then you take the Bashar test. The Bashar test is you go out and you see if it just feels right, it feels comfortable, it just feels natural. If it just feels natural, it just feels right, that's the sign that this is the one for you, the one that Hashem determined for you, not the one that you think is best, not who do I want to be the father of my children, who do I want to be? That's a nice thing to think about, but that's not your decision. You're looking for the one that Hashem chose for you. To be honest with you, most people don't have a clue to what they need, and even if you think you know what you need, believe me, you don't know where you're going to be 20 years from now or 40 years from now. <clears throat> when you get married, it's one time and it's for life. But you don't know where you're going to be 30 years from now. You can't know. And there are certain decisions that are better left to Hashem. You take the paper test, you take the Bashar test, and again, the Bashar test simply is seeing, does it feel right, does it feel natural? And if it does, you trust in Hashem. Okay, <clears throat> let me take one last question. Does it make sense to try and achieve goals that you think you can reach and put your effort towards that? Or try and get some goals that you think are not going to pan out and will probably end up not working and will probably just end in failure? Um, Okay, let me help me understand the question. Does it make sense to try and achieve goals that you think you can reach and put your effort towards that? Or try and get some goals that you think are not going to pan out and probably end up not working and probably just end in failure? I'm having difficulty understanding the question because it sounds... um, yeah, it sounds like one of those no-brainers. I mean, obviously, you set goals that are hopefully reaching a little bit, but they have to be somewhat realistic. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to meet every goal. You may only meet 60% of a goal. You may only meet 50% of it. But it has to be within the realm of possible. In the realm of possible, you set lofty goals a little bit above your comfort level, a little bit above what you normally do, and you you strive. You get there. You try. You may make it. You may make it halfway. You, you try again. You Set another goal. 
but it has to be within the realm of possible. It has to be within the realm. For instance, I use the muscle. <clears throat> Let's say I decide today I want to be a middle linebacker for the NFL. I decide that's what I want to do. And I'm driven, but I'm really, I mean, I am so driven. I'm going to play for the NFL. I'm going to be a middle linebacker. That's it. What do you think is going to happen? So I'd like to share with you that I am going to get hurt very, very badly. Because the average middle linebacker in the NFL weighs somewhere around 300 pounds, solid muscle, 25, 35 years old. I'm an out-of-shape rabbi who's not been lifting weights, certainly not. I don't weigh 300 pounds. I'm not, not even 270, not even 250. I just do not have the stature, the size, no matter how driven I am, no matter how much I want to be, if I make it my goal to play in the NFL on the, as a middle linebacker, forget about it. It's not going to happen. Now, I could set a goal to get in shape. I could set a goal to run a mile in such and such time, to run five miles. I could run a, I could set a goal to lift so much, so much weight. But it has to be realistic. It has to be a little bit of a stretch. You want to set goals that drive you, that motivate you. But it has to be within the realm of possible. Um, okay, one more time. I just want to mention the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make is available on theshmooze.com. If you go to theshmooze.com and order from there, you'll get the audio book as well as the ebook, as well as access to the Marriage Transformation Bootcamp. Please feel free to either go to your local Sarm store and get it or go to shmooze.com. I wish you much tzlacha, a good Shabbos. Hope to see you next week. Thank you.